Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, the host of the podcast, and our sponsor is Zephyr Wellness. It's a company that I co-own in northern Nevada. Check out zephyrwellness.org to learn more. This intro is going to be a little short because the podcast itself is quite long. We are limited to an hour on Dash Radio, for whose support we are thankful, and I'm going to let Louie explain the rest of it. It's a podcast on spirituality, and we cover a broad range of topics. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, info at nogginnotes.com is the way to do that. Also, if you're interested in being uh, part of the show, if you want to send in your comments, your questions, or if you want to sponsor us, we'll we'll definitely welcome your your financial support because uh, it's nice to defray costs sometimes. Info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org and we'll hook you up. Thanks for listening as always. And this is a conversation about spirituality with Pastor Louis Locke. Enjoy. Well, we're back on the Noggin Notes podcast, and today's guest is Louis Locke, and um, I like the alliteration in your name, I gotta say. I have to say that quite a few authority figures in my life have liked that as well. (laughs) Um, Louis is a pastor of uh, Foursquare Church in Reno. Uh, It's Hillside Foursquare. It's where I attend church, so that's how I know Louis. And I thought it would be cool to bring him on and uh, basically make it an interview format where I ask questions about um, how to attain spiritual orientation, how to you know center oneself, and, and the benefits to a good, healthy spiritual anchoring uh, as it relates to mental health and wellness. But what spurred this conversation, or my desire to have it anyway, is that our church recently did this uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting, and... I don't, I'm usually the one talking all the time on the microphone in this podcast, so I wanted to kick it over to Louie and let him explain exactly what that was, and then I can share my own insights uh, as I went through the process, but and we'll see where the conversation goes from there. So anyway, you want to introduce yourself, how long you've been, you know, pastoring it up? Actually, yes. Uh, so I have been pastoring at Hillside since January 30th of 2000, and I have been... Today is January 30th of 2019. It is. Happy 19th anniversary. I wasn't sure when this was going to be going out to the masses, and so I didn't want to say, today is my anniversary. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, Whatever it hits their ears, it can also be their anniversary. Yes, I'll take it. Um, And so I actually started uh, volunteering with uh, children working at a church in Carson City, I think it was October of 89, and uh, my wife and I have kind of stumbled through and ended up where we are, kind of saying yes to things and ended up being asked to lead this one. And so really enjoy it. And here you are. And here I am with uh, you. Being made famous on a podcast. <laughs> so talk about the 21 days of prayer and fasting, where that originated, why it was significant, why it, oh, maybe talk about Foursquare too as a church and uh, it's, it's international. Breadth. Sure. Yeah. The International Church of the Foursquare Gospel was started by Amy Simple McPherson in uh, 1920. She never intended to start a collection of churches, what she really wanted to do was go around and tell people about Jesus. And as a result, uh, churches ended up springing up. Uh, She was well known for being a person who would not only teach people about Jesus, but she would believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning he has a direct impact on what's going on in your life. And uh, many, many, many people were healed as a result of her ministry. And so she traveled around the country, and the places that she went, people came to know who Christ was and wanted to follow him, did so in communities. 
churches spring up all over. And so currently in the United States, there's about 1,500 Foursquare churches. Worldwide, there's about 66,000. And so the vast majority of focus for Foursquare has been outside of the United States. That's a lot. That's a lot of churches. Um, You touched on something that I want to get to later in the podcast about healing, people getting healed, because it sounds very mystical to the the common listener uh, that may not understand the idea of supernatural healing. And I do want to get to that, but for now, I just want to continue in the conversation about the the, the prayer and fasting things. I think it's a topic that often is misunderstood. I mean, probably both prayer and fasting are misunderstood. Um, Share what your understanding is of it. Well, within the Foursquare Church, uh, for the last at least 10 years that I know of, we've taken the first 21 days of each new year to set aside for specific prayer and fasting. And that doesn't necessarily, when I say fasting, doesn't mean a total abstinence from all food and water. It may be choosing to uh, not eat sweets or not eat meat or to uh, one particular fast that a lot of people like is called the Daniel fast, referencing the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Bible, who uh, on a, for a three-week specific period of time uh, devoted himself only to fruit and vegetables and water. Uh, as I understand it, fasting is not so much to try and prove our holiness or our worth to God or to anyone. It's more of an opportunity to set myself apart, to set ourselves apart uh, from our normal routines, to attempt to uh, remind ourselves that we are not subject to follow every whim that comes across us. Uh, one example is I love Slurpees. And I would look every 7-Eleven I drive by, I want to stop in and get the biggest dang uh, cola Slurpee that they have. And one of the things that shows up during the 21 days of fasting is I may feel that, but I don't have to go and, and do it. And I can say, instead of getting that Slurpee, I'm going to take the time that I would normally have been purchasing the Slurpee, drinking the Slurpee, and I'm going to think about and pray for and ask for God's intervention in things in my life and in the lives of those I know and those I don't. And so fasting is about trying to line me up with uh, what I would say God's purposes are versus me trying to get God to do what I want him to. I think two things have popped into my head there related to the psychological community uh, are buzzwords. One is mindfulness. It sounds like a mindfulness exercise. And the second one is emotionality. So a lot of what what I do on this podcast, we talk about uh, emotional functioning and impulsivity, which is what you described when it comes to things that seem like they're out of our control and we just uh, give in to our whims and fancies, our our emotional impulses. And and emotion comes from uh, the limbic system, and that's that's where impulse typically originates. So you're talking about the impulse of, say, uh, excitement, which is driven through desire, perhaps, for the Slurpee. Um, for transparency's sake, for the listening audience, I gave up alcohol, and uh, and I'll tell my my uh, experience with that in a minute. But um, the idea is that you can be mindful of what you're. Uh, maybe unconsciously just falling into on a daily basis, but then replacing that behavior with what sounds like an uh, an outward focus. So you're no longer focused on satisfying your own desires and cravings, but you're then turning your energy outward and praying for um, God's intervention in your life, the lives of others. And so it makes it much less about you and more about uh, serving the the community as a whole or your your own family and it's you know it's it's the de- denial of of impulsive self i guess yeah i would say it for me it comes it works out to be a lot like a refocusing or a recentering um, many people I interact with, and to be honest, myself as well, uh, when it comes down to it, will think about their lives as they kind of happen to them. 
and we don't take into consideration all of the significance of the choices that we make every day. And sometimes these choices have become so ingrained as habits, we don't even think about them as choices. And one of the things that fasting and prayer does is it makes you rethink the pattern of the choices that you make and why you're making the choices and for what. And it may not be like with the Slurpee or the alcohol or the meat, that that's not the main issue Mm -hmm. with fasting. It's Am I truly a slave to my desires? Can I make changes in my life? And can I invite what I believe would be God's power into my life to make those changes, to become the best version of myself that I can be? Yeah, and you're really uh, taking charge, again, of your of your own destiny, for, uh, for lack of a better term. You're, you're not handing it over to this uh, external force, uh, you know, for, for people maybe struggling with... Uh, psychological illnesses like depression or anxiety i often hear them phrase it in such a way that it sounds like some chicken pox that descends from the from the ether and it's like ah my depression is back and it's like you like you have no control over it, it just it just struck you from afar and uh that's that's not at all the the way that i choose to rephrase it because if that's the case then there's very little we can do to overcome it and so if we if we reframe it in such a way that we do have choice over our uh, responses to things, including impulsivity, including whatever we ingest, uh, then we can then choose differently and where we put our attentions and our energies. Um, I mentioned that I was going to share my experience with it. What, when I first thought about what I was going to sacrifice for this fast, it's, it almost sounds like a very similar practice to the, to the Lenten sacrifices of, of the Catholic church and Louis nodding and you can't see that. He's nodding. But, um, the, uh, the you what I learned in school uh, side sidebar to this what I learned in school when we did our uh, addiction studies class was um, one of the tasks for the semester is we had to sacrifice something that was very meaningful to us and we were supposed to obey the first urge or first signal that came into our heads because that was probably the thing that needed addressing the most. Um, Psychologically, we call that a projective uh, technique. So whatever you think of first is probably the deepest uh, desire of your heart and probably is the thing that needs the most work. And mine instantly popped into my head. I was like, alcohol. And for those of you who know, uh, I homebrew, which means I, I brew my own beer, and I've, I've been very involved in the homebrew community for about eight or nine years now. And, and th- when that popped into my head, I thought, no, 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 that can't be it. <laughs> it's got to be something else. And I, and I played around with a few other things like social media, which I don't really participate in. Um, you know, I thought maybe I could just uh, stop texting at 7 p.m. or something. And, and then I, I realized I was just kidding myself. And so came down to alcohol and I, I sacrificed the alcohol. Well, about a week in, uh, we went to a friend's birthday and I decided to have a non-alcoholic beer. And when I, when I drank the beer, uh, it was it was a Kloss Toller. For those of you who are interested, it was uh, something I'd never had before. And it was really quite good. But I found myself enjoying it almost too much to the point that I thought maybe I was cheating. <laughs> and, uh, and it forced some self-evaluation to the point that I realized it wasn't the alcohol at all. It was specifically the beer. And beer being my, my zen focus now, it's the only hobby I really have in which I, I really indulge a lot of um, you know effort, I, I guess, invest a lot of effort, not necessarily indulge. And for but, that, we uh, thank you. Yeah, yes, I know. I, uh, I, I do share my beer quite frequently. So thank if you you're for that. In the listening audience, and you find yourself in Reno, um, you're more than welcome to join me for a pint. Um, but uh, the, the point was that I, I realized that it wasn't about the alcohol, it was about the beer. And, and then I had to do some more exploration and realized that the reason it was the beer is because that was the thing that is my 
my joy these days. Uh, probably 10 years ago, it would have been playing baseball or maybe snowboarding. Uh, anywhere I can get away and just be in the moment while in, endeavoring something that's creative and, and brings me a lot of joy. So from that, I determined that if one is to sacrifice in order to focus in on one's own spirituality, uh, it has to be a sacrifice that means something. It can't be done for reasons like, well, I want to lose weight or I want to become a better person. I mean, I guess you become a better person along the way, but uh, I, w- I want to look good for my friends or I want to brag about it on social media. It's got to be deep and personal. And I realized that through the process. Uh, so you can imagine that you know, a couple days pass and I realized, well, I should, I could probably have a cocktail again, right? Well, no, I mean, I wanted to stick to the, to the promise that I'd made and the commitment. And, and I wrote it out the 21 days and through that process, I had some other revelations occur and those were very cool. And I, I can get into those in a, in a minute, but I'm, I'm curious to know, Louie, what your experience was with your fast and your prayer. Similar to yours. I think it's kind of funny how the human brain, I'm hiding behind the human brain, so I don't have yeah. to talk about mine. Um, how the brain works in that... A, a, a one's human brain. Right. Not a guy I yours know, or mine. A guy yeah. I know. Asking for a friend. Yeah. I guess the, the thought being, once I had decided, okay, I'm going to fast, I'm going to not eat this, I'm not going to drink this, this is what I'm going to do, my brain started looking for loopholes. Yeah. There's, where could I, how close to the line can I get and not violate what I've said. And it was interesting because it's almost like I was having this Smeagol Gollum conversation yeah. on yeah. where it's like there's a part of me that's saying, no, it's the it's the spirit of this. It's the principle behind it. It's not the letter of the law. That's in As I look at my spirituality, it's not a big angry God in heaven who's looking to smite you for every time you make a mistake or every time you don't toe the line or don't do what he wants or just because it's Monday. Uh, instead it's much more of a God desires that we would experience life in all of its fullness and that we would know that the things that he would say, I want you to not do this. I want you to avoid actually lead to areas that are either immediate or long-term areas where we die off. And, and a lot of times people would call that sin or wrong, but it's like sin isn't sin because, you know, God just doesn't want us to enjoy ourselves, but sin and wrong are bad because it leads to things that are destructive to us. And so for me, it was the wrestling process of, I don't want to, I guess, try and approach God at arm's length and turn it into a list of religious obligations. And I can technically do this and not, not do that. There's parallels in the Bible that talk about how Jesus would call out the religious leaders of his day who were very great at the form of religiousness, but missed the very heart of it. And he would, you know, you guys focus on the fasting and you do twice a week and you do this and that, and you're plotting my death at the same time. You you, uh, travel as far as you can to try and make disciples of yourself. And at the same time, what you're actually doing is you're making disciples of yourself and not disciples of God, people who he actually called them twice the sons of hell that you are. And so strongly, but then just to see that inside myself of, I I degenerate into a religious approach versus a personal and relational approach. And the, I think at the, the core of the idea of the fast, it's a personal private getting to know me and getting to know how God sees me and loves me and cares for me and actually is using the process of the fast to purify my own thought processes, to help bring deliverance from ways of thinking that are toxic, ways of interacting with people that are selfish and self-focused, and to not just for altruistic sake, but to truly think, I want to answer the Jesus question, what can I do for you? How can I live as a blessing to the people in my life? 
what I'm hearing in there too is a lot of uh, fight or struggle against what we're bombarded with on a regular basis by advertising and media of all forms, particularly social media, that invites us to compare against a neighbor and evaluate whether the grass is greener. And uh, it's very, very challenging to align oneself with something like God, which is totally intangible. Uh, we've got you know evidence if you allow yourself to see it in God's greatness uh, across all the earth and all of humanity, uh, including the, the very deep uh, divine souls within human beings. Um, and yet the tension exists where you're looking for validation externally. So like, how can I tell other people about this personal self-introspective uh, growth process? Well, you really can't because they can't possibly understand it because they're not you. And that's a very private, as you said, uh, analysis and evaluation and, and evolution with God. And God doesn't always speak in an audible tone. So there's, it's really hard to affirm one's own efforts when it's hard when when you can't see it when you can't touch it and measure right. it so so how do we how do we do that how do we how do we know that we ourselves are growing and that maybe if we're cutting off um dead branches of our own lives or we're we're uh distancing ourselves from things that are not helpful i won't even call them you know not everything's toxic it just may not be as helpful as it could be to to you in your own path um how do we do that and stand confidently knowing that along the way some people may get offended and it's not about us, it's about them and their own offense at that and you know the distancing and all that stuff. How do we do that and know that we're we're doing the right thing? And it's not just some sort of um you know I don't, I don't offensive uh self indulgent uh walk that we're taking. I think again, speaking for myself, I involve a, a circle of friends that I will engage with. We will share together about the things that we're going through, that we're experiencing, the things that we're doing, the areas where we're feeling like we're being led to grow. Maybe that feeling or of being led comes from a series of thoughts that continue to come around. It's like not necessarily feeling like they originate within me, but I really feel led mm. to address how I speak to and address people when they first engage with me. If you know me, when you see my face, I've definitely got what is called the resting, uh, what's the RBF. Yeah. The e uh, RBF. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, even on my best day, I look as though I'm severely constipated and having, a, <laughs> having a, not a good one. Uh, and so I really, I want to, uh, as authentically as I can be to relay what's truly going on inside of me when I engage with a person. And so I do when I interact with my circle of of accountability people, my friends. Uh, there will be times where we'll we will in, engage in discussion about what we feel God's leading us in. I think, however, one of the most significant things for me that I have been doing for about the last three years is once a month I do a Skype session with a uh, my spiritual director. He's a, a pastor, a counselor, and we meet for an hour and he asks questions. And most of the time, I'll write down a few leads of where I think we're going to go with the with the our discussion for the day. But most of the time, it's not anything beyond just a few words. And with the probing questions that he asks, it helps between the, the lens of his own insights and input and the questions that he's asking and uh, the process that I'm going through. It helps me to see, oh, you know, he offers a great perspective. I've been talking to you for three years. Here's what I see that's been shifting in you. And so with that, it comes, you know, it's like having somebody hold the mirror up and say, oh, mm -hmm. okay, this is this is what you're seeing. I'm seeing a lot of, uh, I love the way that you say that too. You're, you're using a, a 
trusted circle of friends. Um, and, and I'm, I'm encountering more and more clients come through either my own or those that get staffed to me by my, uh, students and my interns who are struggling with the idea that it's okay to not insulate oneself, but become interdependent, not, not codependent, but interdependent on a very small circle of friends. Um, because it flies in the face of what social media tells us is augmentation of friendship for the sake of augmentation, not necessarily that those relationships are deep and valuable and meaningful, but that, uh, more is better. And there's a, there's a cultural narrative out there that says, if you don't include everyone who ever walks in front of your life, you're somehow, uh, an ist there's a, you know, the hyphen IST on there, you know, racist, sexist, uh, bigot home or a phobe. Right. Um, and it's really tough to communicate that it's okay to to trust your inner circle and get feedback from that without it becoming uh, a self fulfilling echo chamber. Right? How do you how do you handle that? I mean, do you, do you care about what people say if if that even comes up in your world, or is this just a new millennial thing that we're seeing? It's funny. Uh, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with our mutual friend Tim, and he is about 10 years older than me, comes from a very similar background, grew up as he's the oldest child, just like me, uh, several siblings and growing up within a church context. One of the things that he said that really has uh, impacted me since I heard it, it's probably been 10, 12 years ago, was he says, I, I see myself as one brick in a wall. And I don't have a lot of contact with very many of the bricks in the wall, but I do have contact with all the ones that are directly around me. I see that as the people that I'm supposed to be influencing or be influenced by, the ones who I'm going to have the greatest point of of communication and contact with. And so I'm not touching every other brick in the wall, but the ones that I am, I'm going to touch significantly, and I'm going to mm. let them touch me. And so what I took from that and from further conversations, what we really came up with is I don't take what everybody says at face value and think, okay, I need to follow everybody's advice. But for the people who I know and love and trust, and it's not an echo chamber, and they tell me the things that are not the things that you necessarily want to hear, but it's the hard truth spoken in love. Those are the people you really want to hear. The people who you know want the best for you and who want you to be the best you you can be, who say, you know what, this needs to stop, or this is an area I really see some really great improvement, or have you ever considered this? Uh, the weight behind some of those words is enough to really make you pause and at least consider why am I doing what I'm doing? And I think that's something that no matter what your bent is to take time to consider, why am I thinking what I'm thinking? Why am I saying what I'm saying? Why am I doing what I'm doing on a regular basis? I think leads us towards what you talked about earlier, mindfulness, being mindful of who we are, our place in our world, our city, our all that. That's my favorite word in counseling is intentionality and intentionality asks that question. Why do you do what you do? And what you're uh, alluding to there is the fact that we we simply can't help all people. We can't touch all people. They can't touch us. We would get so inundated with an overflow of information that we wouldn't know what to pick. And I think that's where uh, a spiritual uh, doctrine comes in very, very handy. Uh, I, I encourage my clients to pick one. I don't really even care what it is. Mine happens to be following Jesus, as is yours. But it doesn't necessarily have to look the same way be as long as you're anchored. Because if you're, um, as Jordan Peterson used, I'm going to take his word, unmoored, if you will, you, you run the risk of just being adrift. And then you have no 
no direction, and without direction, you can't find any depth, and without depth, life is, well, by definition, shallow, and who wants a shallow life, uh, where you're just pinging from one topic or one influence to the next without ever knowing why you do what you do. Um, it's really hard to find meaning that way, and, and I think that finding that inner circle of bricks or friends uh, upon whom you can rest and know that you're being guided appropriately with you know, being spoken truth in love is, I, I think, very important. Being spoken the truth in, um, in I guess, in condescension or anger is, is not helpful because then you lose your audience because it flares the limbic system and we don't hear well. Um, so I, I appreciate that answer. It's it's knowing that, that you can stay narrow in your lane and in your focus and still do great things and have great impacts. And I think that's a nice segue into talking about how we impact others through our prayer. And I want to talk a little bit about interconnectedness. Um, but for right now, I want to take a quick break and um, we'll let the listening audience digest what we've set up to this point And we'll come back in just a second. This is the Noggin Notes podcast. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Louis Locke, uh, pastor of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. Uh, probably should have given a plug for the website, hillside4.org. Yeah. Yeah, hillside4.org. I don't know why that was so hard to remember. Uh, if you want to check out, there's there's podcasts of all the sermons that Louis gives and then our guest uh, sermonators. Speechers. <laughs> speechers. Uh, yeah, we we don't even call them sermons. We call them teachings. Teachings or speeches. Really, it's really what it is. It's a, it's a teaching. There's, there's supposed to be an educational benefit to it. Sermon sounds like a, a unidirectional... Um, process of of levying information from from up on high and that's not how you conduct well think about the, the verb sermonize automatically you think someone yeah. on a platform with a finger pointed at you yeah probably not too happy right right yeah telling you um how to live your life and not necessarily um through your lens but through theirs and i think that's that's equally dangerous but that's a different topic for probably another day maybe later in this podcast but let's talk about interconnectedness um i believe that we're all divine beings i think that we're all made in the image of god and therefore it's a it's a pretty easy uh step to us all being uh not only unique as individuals, because God loves wondrous variety, as um, Azim once said, um, but also that we all have the same potential. If we're all made in the image of God, we have the same infinite divine capacity to achieve. And um, and I think that's really special. And I think, I think it means that if we're all connected to the same heavenly-inspired uh, divinity— then we probably all can influence one another, at least on a, on a spiritual or energetic level. And I think that's where at least my understanding of what prayer does, especially when we pray for things like healing or provision or wisdom or insight or peace or uh, any of those things, what we're essentially saying is my soul reaches out to your soul on a divine plane to offer this uh, intervention or this intercession. Is that, is that your understanding of it? My way off. <laughs> I wouldn't say you're off. I think prayer. There's a butt coming. <laughs> no, it's. Uh, I'm just thinking through the different categories of prayer that are described. You've got your prayers of thanksgiving, where you're acknowledging the things that have been provided for you, the things that have been done for you, the things that other people have meant to you. You have your prayers of petition, where you're specifically asking for this, this, and this. You have your prayers of intercession, where you're praying on behalf of other people. You're praying for felt needs. When, you know, Cousin Joe's got cancer, we want to pray, God, would you please intervene and bring healing in his body? But even more to 
give him the strength and courage to keep going. And so it's in a lot of ways, it's not taking, uh, it's not taking yourself out of the equation and saying, okay, God, just whatever you want to do. It's recognizing we've been invited to partner with God. Not that we're the one that do it, but we partner with him. He's, He's invited us to say, ask in my name, in Jesus name. And he wants to, he wants to be involved in our lives, and that's in our decision-making. It's in our in, uh, interactions with people. It's in the, the guiding principles of our life. Is it unfair to accuse our modern Western culture of saying that it doesn't like the idea of having to go to an all-powerful boss in the form of a god to ask for things because we've been told that we are enough and we can overcome everything individually and uh, and then, and then there's been this like almost leveling of hierarchical structures it says, you know, boss isn't greater than employee and all that stuff. I mean, is it, is it unfair to say that culture is now, or maybe it's always been trying to turn that on its ear and say, you don't need spirituality. You don't need divinity. You don't need a God. You just, you just need you. It's a very Western idea. I don't think it's unfair at all. I think the idea of being completely self-sufficient, who needs uh, help is the people who are weaker. And I'm mm-hmm. using my air quotes here. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, think about when someone enters a 12-step prog- program. What's the first thing they have to acknowledge? That there's a higher power. Right. So, well, and you have to submit. Yeah. There's a submission, either well, both and, but uh, to to the, uh, the the powerlessness over the, the substance. Right. And then also that uh, you need something to help guide you through that. Right. And so it's an acknowledgement of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, in my 49 years of life, I've traveled uh, throughout Western Europe. I've traveled in the U.S. I've traveled in South America and Central America. And what I've discovered is uh, the Western mind really think was really inflated. We really think a lot of ourselves and our abilities. And we really look down on people who are not as capable as we are, who would acknowledge that they have a need for something else. And it's almost as though we deny the fact that we are human. We deny the fact that we have limits. We deny the fact that we are interconnected and interdependent. We almost that the, uh, I, I'm reminded of the old be all you can be in the army mm-hmm. type of a thing. And it, it's really, you know, we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. And there's it's something that appeals. Be UPS, one of the, by the way, not the army. Yeah, the few, the proud, you know, mm-hmm. type of a uh, approach. And so I don't think that's unfair at all. I think it's it's actually spot on. And even for a while there, the army commercials went to army of one. Yeah. I mean, which is totally contraindicated to the, to the army itself. Um, Imagine showing up after you've been yeah. recruited. Yeah. I'm here for the Army of One. It's like, actually, it works different than that. <laughs> uh, welcome to boot camp, son. You're just like everyone else. Um, where do you think that originates? I think it originates uh, in in pride. I think it originates is we get so smart. We have so much access to information. We have so much access mm. to knowledge. And the more we get and grow in those things... It's it's part of the human experience, and it, it goes into you read through the scriptures. You find out one of the key challenges that a person has is if they decide they have no need of anything other than themselves. That's one of the greatest obstacles anybody could have to overcome. And so, I think for people who live in second and third world countries, they have no qualms about the fact that they are in need and that they need something and someone to be a help. But we're pretty sufficient, and we're okay with that. And it. And it invites that comparison that I'm so averse to, which is, um, and in this particular case, it's a comparison of stuff. Um, It's the tangible items. I'm 
looking around this uh, this basement office in my house where you and I are recording this, and I've got I've got stuff, and there's stuff that I probably don't need, and there's definitely stuff that I don't need, and there's stuff I could certainly do without, and um, there's been a push to go you know minimalist, right, and just do with what your bare needs are and that kind of thing. Um, Which is also a competition. It, it, it right, absolutely, it is. It's uh, who can be the most minimal, right? Instead of just simply being at peace with oneself and one's own identity within God or within Christ, um, you can you can get really caught up in the external influences of life and then never be at peace because you're always chasing a ghost and that and it can never be defined. And when something's not defined and yet you're trying to chase it you're going to be full of anxiety and probably some depression too, because you're not going to get there. Um, so when we're talking about the, the accumulation of stuff and the comparison against others and the, the, the kind of the condescension that happens that then turns into a, and I will, I can help you. I have more, what I would refer to as resources and therefore my resources can be used to help this person who has not resources. We fail to account for the, the intangible and the unseen. And it's quite possible that those folks in third world countries who lack resource, or even we'll just say rural areas of, of America, um, they lack resources and as defined by the people who have the resources. And then it, and then it becomes this almost imperialistic attitude that says, well, you must be on my level, so it's my job to pull you up. But we totally overlook the fact that maybe these people are actually living happier than than the people with the quote-unquote resources. Right. Yeah, I think to be content is one of the great pursuits of people's lives. And there's a big difference between being satiated for a mm-hmm. moment and being truly able to be content. And contentedness is something that has to be learned. What's well, the difference between pleasure and joy? Right. Yeah. So I can I can have a moment of pleasure that's fleeting or I can have joy that's everlasting. And from from many perspectives, I think that depends on where you direct your thoughts. Um, if I direct my thoughts on some on stuff that uh, for which I'm grateful, I'll have an attitude of gratitude not to make a rhyme. But hey, well. um, <laughs> uh, my attitude will be will be grateful. And then and from that point, I can extend uh, help, blessing um, intervention to those who are desiring it rather than those who I believe need it. Need does not always necessarily uh, constitute want. Um, but simultaneous to that, if I find my own contentment, I've got, I've got media messaging and advertising that tells me that I'm not content and I never will be. And so I need to go buy the new thing or upgrade my phone or, uh, get a bigger grill or whatever it may be. Um, so it's, it's a constant battle. I think there's a tension there that needs to be acknowledged as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that I had mentioned this earlier is the Jesus question. He very rarely, if at all, would go into a situation and just tell people, okay, this is what you need. What he would do is he'd go into situations, interact with people, earn the right to speak into their life, and and say something along the lines of, what can I do for you? In my world, the the life of a Christ follower is not coming with a message that we need to proclaim and, and dictate to everyone how things need to go, but rather to ask that same question, what can I do for you? Because it may be that the per, what the person immediately needs is not what their greatest need is, but it's something that's going to allow them to be drawn in to uh, have that potential need met and then to be able to pursue their own journey of life and health and hope. Well, in counseling, we, we're taught in counselor school that the presenting need is almost never the actual uh, desire right. to be treated. 
Uh, and it's I, a place it's to just, start. It, it absolutely is. And sometimes when you ask, you know, how can I help you? The answer is you can't, or I don't care for your help, or I'm not in a place to need it. And sometimes those people even walk into the counseling office saying, uh, you know, I want help. And I just discussed this on a previous podcast about motivation. They'll say that I'm here for X, but their motivation isn't really that. And so timing matters as well. I want to get back to the, the prayer thing and, and the, the spiritual healing because um, I alluded to that before and I wanted I said we'll come back to it you know later on and this is that time. How do we you and I know people who have recovered miraculously from great things mm-hmm. and you and I know people who have not. Yes. And I think for the average listener who may be uh, I want to use this term loosely, an unbeliever, but not necessarily in the in the Christian sense, but just a, an agnostic or even an atheist who says, you know, there is nothing beyond uh, uh, our lives here, and it's time plus matter plus chance equals humanity, and there's no depth. That's fine. And to those ears, they may hear something like, well, we've seen miraculous healings, and we've seen not miraculous healings, and therefore God must not exist, or God is arbitrary and capricious. How do you explain to people that God absolutely does intervene in people's lives in order to bring healing to miraculous circumstances like stage four cancer right. uh, versus the person who dies from the same cancer? Right. How, do, how do you reconcile that to people? Well, as a person who lost his brother to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1990, I get asked this question a lot. How can you pray for healing when when you were praying for healing for your brother? This did not happen. You didn't see what it you quote wanted. unquote didn't work. Yeah, it didn't take. So you know, does God just flip a coin? Is he that capricious? Uh, I think one of the things that comes to mind is our greatest need is not always the one that's presenting itself. And so that's very hard for human brains, especially Western human brains to conceptualize. So I can remember one of the things that my brother had said is, yes, I know that I'm going through this hard time. It's been a year and a half of cancer treatments, uh, bone marrow transplants, everything that the time that was known to do, they threw it at it and it didn't touch it. And he says, if I continue to live, I'm going to live to glorify God. And if I don't, if my physical body dies, then I'll know as soon as I die, I'll be present with him. But my greatest need is not that I have this immediate healing in my body. My greatest need is that I would be able to know and be known by the one who gave himself for me, for God and through Jesus Christ. And he said, and to be able to know that no matter what I go through, I'm not going through it on my own. I'm not alone. And that when I invite God into my process, even when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't need to be afraid because he's with me and there's comfort. And so I think recognizing our greatest need is to know and be known by God allows us to, yes, fully engage and ask for, you know, Jesus called them signs and wonders. The signs and wonders mm-hmm. are, they're, they're meant to cause us to take a look and to point, but mm-hmm. the human condition involves suffering and disease and illness and sickness. And God doesn't come in into your life and say, okay, this won't affect you at all. He says, no matter what you go through, however, I will be with you and I'm not going to abandon you. And in times where we've been surrounded by people all with the same disease, all suffering, and for the people who did not have that extra hope of knowing God and knowing that he's with them the, and seeing the despair there, and then to be able to have them ask, you know, what what's different about you? Asking my brother, it's like, you've been given the death sentence, go home and, you know, choose the room you want to die in. And he says, because I know that this is not all that there is, and that there is a, a God who cares for me and who's with me and is not going to leave me alone no matter what I go through. Because as a human, I'm subject to what happens here on the earth. I'm not we as a Christian. Mm-hmm. I don't get... 
uh, uh, get out of suffering free card. But what I do get is that the, I'm never going to be abandoned or forsaken. And that's the promise. Is it fair or reasonable to say that, uh, and you can't see the air quotes again, cause this is radio. Um, it's digital radio, it's a podcast, but is it fair to say that God in, in air quotes, when he's walking with us is not necessarily intangible, but comes in the form of other humans. I have a saying that I have developed, which is actually meaning I stole it from someone. <laughs> yes. They're not here. Um, is my, my mentor who, who died about four years ago. He said, God will always answer your prayers with people. Hmm. So it'd be very nice if he would just fairy godmother you. It's like, here's your answer. Bibbity bobbity boo. There you go. But Almost 99.9% of the time when you pray and you're asking for God to meet a need, he's going to answer that need with people and his representatives who are there. And maybe they don't even know that that's what they're doing, but they're there to stand alongside, to bring comfort, to bring the peace. It's interesting. You you talk about how the, they may not know that they're there um, because we have a belief that evil works in the same way. Evil will work through people who are very good people, good natured, willing, um, and yet they don't know that they're necessarily being manipulated by the uh, the dark side. You and I both like Star Wars. Um, you have no idea of the power of the dark side. <laughs> oh, well, you know, anger turns to hate and hate turns to, you know, rage mm-hmm. uh, leads to the dark side. So, um, and it's really easy to give into those things. I can't believe I just butchered that Yoda quote. And my it's brain okay. is trying to, trying to remember. But um, the idea is that we can be well-intentioned. And as uh, my friend and mentor, Christian Conti, says regularly, people see your actions, not your intentions, which is what, which is our return to mindfulness and intentionality. Be intentional about why you do what you do that, so that people see the actions, not the intentions. Because you can be really well-intentioned and still be a, a tool of, of the enemy, of the devil, um, and not even know it. And I think that that... That opposite is true because I don't want the I don't want to take this podcast negative. I don't want to be all doom and gloom. Like oh, we're all just agents of the enemy, and we're not a, we're not aware of it. Um, we also can be agents of good and not be aware of it. So the um, the simple eye contact with the cashier uh, and a smile, and you don't know that that person's having a rough day, uh, may make all the difference in the world. And that's and that's God. That's God working. That's God delivering somebody's prayer. Maybe on behalf of that cashier who's struggling or maybe the cashier or him or herself, um, you walk through the line and you say, hi, you know, uh, thanks for having a cheery smile today. And they're like, I had no idea I had a cheery smile and it, and it totally changes everything. So I appreciate that nod that we can sometimes be, uh, utilized on a spiritual level to help others and not be aware of it. Yeah. It's, uh, anything that is not illegal, immoral or unbiblical, do that. You get a thought that comes across your mind to be a point of help to somebody. If it's not something that's, again, illegal, immoral, unbiblical, look for opportunities to where you can be a blessing. Um, the Blues Brothers were on a mission from God. Mm-hmm. I believe in the same way, every person who is a Christ follower has the same mission from God for their life. And it, what would it look like if Jesus was walking in my shoes in my neighborhood, the people I interact with? And it's not presumptuous to say, you know, hi, I'm here, I'm God's uh emissary to you i'm here to bless your life it's simply looking to do good in jesus name to do good and that's not hard to do that's there's there's so much bleakness in the world there's so much pain to go around i I mean my profession i still don't understand why people are in competition in my profession it just doesn't make any sense to me um like we can well like we could treat everybody like no this is my corner don't step in my corner um 
Or the idea of losing people if they leave your church to go to another church. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. They've gone to the, another church. Yeah. <laughs> their their theology isn't as pristine as ours. Oh, wait. Was that religiosity? Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. So the same thing afflicts both. Um, well, I, I really like the idea of, of just doing some good. It's 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 really hard to screw that up, I think, um, unless you... <laughs> You're like slapping someone You're like this is for you this is for you slap slap <laughs> well jesus said something to, it's even to the person who gives a cup of cold water in his name gives mm-hmm. a, it there's there's a blessing behind that and we can look at the world and say what a mess what can i do it's like we are i think the christ followers best to not think in a macro type of a approach to the world but a micro mm-hmm. i can do what i can do mm-hmm. and if i do what I can do and other people do what they can do. It's going to be something that has an effect. I think the key there too, is you said in, in Jesus's name, right? So even for people who don't necessarily follow Jesus, you can do it in the name of, you can do something in the name of Buddha. Buddha is a good guy. He's, he's a great prince. He taught his teachings were, are universal. Um, there's lots of things you can do in the name of somebody who is, who is righteous and it's impossible to do it wrong because I've said this before. You can't be in two psychologically opposed states at the same time. You can't be um, pissing and moaning and grateful. You can't be angry and joyous. Um, And similarly, you can't go give uh, enmity or strife or or misery in the name of something righteous. It doesn't work. Like, in the name of Jesus, I curse you. Like, well, that's not actually a thing. So I appreciate that you said that. So if you're you're doing it with, with... you know, staked in righteousness um, on on behalf of good moral terms, uh, I don't think you can go wrong. And we can have political debates about what's best, but, I mean, presuming everybody has good intentions in mind, I don't think you can mess that up. I want to take another quick break, and then we'll come back with Louie, and we'll wrap up with uh, two more topics that I have uh, front and center in my head. So there's my tease going into the break. Stick with us. You're listening to Noggin Notes. Okay, we're back, and you're listening to the Noggin Notes podcast. I'm joined by Pastor Louis Locke, going into our third segment here. And you and I were talking at the break about um, the intersection of psychotherapy and spirituality, and how I've said multiple times over that my my spiritual faith has grown my counseling ability and vice versa. When I got into grad school, it actually enhanced my spiritual faith. And and I did not find that psychology or the field of counseling or the field of psychology as a whole um, is somehow of the occult, which is what a lot of um, religious followers may believe. And in the last several years, I've been able to, to have a lot of conversations with a lot of people about the integration of the two. Um, I wrote an article, and I think I did a I may not have done a video or a podcast. I don't remember. But but at some point, I, d- I know I wrote an article and I said something else about um, th- you, it's really tough to have anxiety if you have faith. And that's one of those you know two psychologically opposed states that you can't be in at the same time. You can't have faith and have anxiety. Anxiety is rooted in fear. Fear of what? Typically the unknown, uh, something in the future. Uh, anxiety, as I describe it, is when we fixate our our thoughts on something in the future that has yet to occur and we can't do anything about because it it's not here yet. And so we have all this fear about it because we can't control it, we can't see it, we can't predict it. And faith is letting go of that. Faith is saying, whatever will be, will be, and I have I have trust that it's going to be good. And even if it's not, quote-unquote, good by um, most measures, 
I'm still going to overcome. I'm going to endure. I'm going to learn something at bare minimum, even if it's not, you know, quote unquote good. So faith says, no matter what, I'm going to be okay. And I don't have to worry about knowing the future. Anxiety says, you better worry about the future because you're going to have to control it. And probably it's going to be bad. And, and then you're going to be unmes- you know, unhappy and, and miserable. So, um, the intersection of faith and, and, um, and, and psychology, I guess, is, um, that people who learn both are typically really well integrated and insightful individuals who can then offer their, um, their insight and their healing from a place of, uh, wisdom and introspect and intentionality. And it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn there, but I, but that's just been my, my experience. And similarly with the clients that I, that I treat who don't have a, a well anchored faith belief in some level of spirituality, they struggle psychologically, uh, in, in long, big, broad ways. So my question to you is, as a pastor, you fly into that um, gap where licensing boards don't regulate you like they regulate me, and um, yet you get to do some level of counseling with people who come to you seeking that, uh, that insight and the wisdom. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about it, but my specific question is, how do you balance um, just have faith? with, uh, I think you need some, some intellectual, uh, exploration here, you know, some book level knowledge. Right. I swear having faith and the book level knowledge are not mutually exclusive. Correct. It's what you just said. Correct. Um, and I think that the idea of a blind faith is not something that I would say Christianity encourages or per- pursues. It's really looking at, if, to quote, I'm using Bible quotes now, <laughs> uh, Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about putting our faith in something that is a sure thing. It's in the, the knowledge and purpose. Per- person and name of Christ. And so having blind faith, it's like, it's not like the, I don't know if you remember the old angels in the outfield movie where it's like the angels are going to win. It could happen. And it's like, there's no evidence that would ever support that this could happen, but we're just going to believe that somehow it could go there. And that's not what faith is. Faith is the, the surety in some belief in something that's not there yet, but that it's firmly rooted in something that's uh, predictably good. You have some knowledge that precedes it, in other words. Yeah. So how do you have that conversation with somebody who comes in and says, you know, hey, Pastor Louie, I'm really struggling in my marriage. I don't think it's going to work. They're, you know, they're super negative. They're down. They're, they're not They're not receiving positive feedback. What do, you, what do you do with that? I, well... The, the world we live in, I make it clear I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm a counselor. My um, licensing board appreciates that. Yes, because I, you know, even using the word counselor, I, I don't want them to think that somehow that's that's what I am. I am a pastor, and I'm a person who will listen. Uh, I have some insights. People, I like to listen to what them talk about. Where do you think the issues are? What are the what What does your spouse say the issues are? I like to have them both there to be able to to discuss it. And then to think, you know, what are the things you're hoping to see happen in your marriage relationship? And to think, uh, you know, I may be having a conversation with a couple and this just isn't going to work. It never works because he doesn't even understand. He, he says he loves me, but then he never helps around the house. And having something as simple as saying, you know what you really need to do? consider reading the five love languages book Mm -hmm. because you will learn a new language that maybe your spouse speaks and maybe you don't in your, your natural. That would be acts of service that you just illustrated. Yeah. And so acts of service, words of encouragement, gifts, quality time, physical touch. So just because someone says that they love you and they're not doing it doesn't mean they don't necessarily love you, but they're not loving you in the way that most makes sense to you. So I would say 
practically what you can do is add some knowledge base on different ways to appropriately love your spouse. And that speaks to the intentionality component where you know why you do what you do. You're not just doing it out of, you know, quote unquote, blind faith. Um, what I've found is that you just pointed to something, the five love languages. That's that's a place to start. And uh, Gary Chapman is the author. If you guys want to um, check that out, it's it's um, it's considered pop psychology, but uh, because it's not you know necessarily research backed or you know quote unquote evidence based. But I we actually studied it in school, and we uh, ended up having to write a paper about it. It's very very good. I prescribe it to anybody who needs to learn how to communicate. Really. Um, it doesn't have to be spouses or intimate partners. It could be parent to child. It could be boss to employee. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic book. It's the five love languages by Gary Chapman. But anyway, what you just said there is you pointed to something. And I think that that alludes to what I was referencing earlier, which is if you're well anchored in some scripture, you have something to point to that you say, this is concrete. This is unmovable. This is everlasting. And from there you can start because you do have the faith that whatever that foundation is, is unshakable as opposed to rooting yourself in, um, something that is shakable like money or, uh, common interests. Uh, those can always change based on, you know, if my, if our common interest is racquetball, but then, you know, we get knee surgery, you can't play racquetball anymore. Now, now what, you know, do I not love you as much anymore? So we want to, we want to anchor ourselves in something that, that is immovable. How often do you find yourself returning people to, presumably they come to you because they're in your church or whatever, um, returning them to scripture of some kind, any kind, you're probably biblical scripture more often than not. I would say every time I meet with somebody, I may illustrate the scriptural principle, but I'm also going to be pointing them to, now here's an example of this, like the five love languages, it's consider others, the the biblical uh, scripture that would reflect that is consider others better than yourself. Do for others what you would have them do for you. Uh, But it's almost like people have this filter over their ears. You say scripture and they go, that's not for me. It's for scholars or for pastors or for Mm -hmm. church people. And so I want to at least say there's a, here's where I'm coming from, but truth is truth. We can find the examples of this truth lived out and where it's working and where they, someone's been able to say, Hey, here's where I'm connecting the dots. And so all the time I'll use scripture and all the time I'll also bring in other examples from the quote unquote real world. Well, I think that real world is uh, just as researched. I mean, we have our areas of competence as counselors too. I wouldn't necessarily go dabbling in something that I hadn't well researched and, and been exposed to and shepherded through in a, in a mentor mentored relationship uh, because I don't want to be cherry picking principles. I want to be anchored well by whatever the, the doctrine is that informs it, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or Jungian analytic psychology or choice theory or EMDR or DBT or any, any, anything. I don't want to dabble because it sounds cool because I saw a five minute video on YouTube about it. I want to, I want to go attend a, a weekend long seminar and then connect with somebody who's been practicing it for a while and then slowly unroll it. And, and I think what you're talking about there is the idea that we don't just simply float from from cool sounding concept to cool sounding concept because again as i referenced earlier you're then unmoored you're you're just floating and you don't have any substance to knowing why you do what you do and the intentionality behind it and i think the same speaks for spirituality in general why do you believe what you believe so i guess to to conclude i as i know we're getting a well yeah we're coming up on an hour here um what is what is your uh, overall uh, impression of what spirituality means and how people achieve it. I know that's a, probably not a good question to end on, but you know if we could get a what spirituality a means. 
I think it's recognizing you referenced uh, the divine spark that's inside of all of us. Um, the very beginning when people were created, God said, let us make man in our image. means that we've got that inside of us. So it's not necessarily achieving it, it's recognizing it. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're not base creatures. We're not just... Um, Animals. Automatons. Well, well, yeah, and we're not robot. We're we're uh, the, and again. I'm quoting scripture again. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We're each. How dare you? Yes, you pastor you. <laughs> uh, but there's a and it's without overstating how important it is or how important we would then what kind of self importance we derive from it. It's recognizing every human being is an incredible potential gift. And to yes. acknowledge that for ourselves and to think if that's the case, then how I act is incredibly important. How I treat other, these other special gifts is an incredibly important thing. And politics and economics and military, government, you, you, all those things can get involved. But at some point, you look at Jesus, he existed and he flew completely under the radar. The people wanted him to get political, wanted to get, wanted him to get economic, wanted him to get military, and sure he was familiar with it. But his main thing was he dealt with people on the macro level, on the micro level, for who they were, and he tried to get them to consider that there's such an incredible gift that they have in other people and in themselves. I think that's really beautiful, and it speaks to the idea that we can see through others' outward presentations and into the inner soul of how they were created to be by God to walk the earth for their own, you know, their own on their own path for for the for God's purposes. And when we see through that stuff, it allows us to have great compassion and understanding and non-judgmentalism for uh, people who have done horrible, atrocious things and suffered horrible atrocities while knowing that they're not limited by that. They're not limited by their behaviors. So while we see your your actions and not your intentions, that's not necessarily how we evaluate you in perpetuity we don't just simply slap a label on somebody who committed a a violent crime and say he's a violent offender as if that's all he could ever be and we don't simply say um similarly we don't say you know he's a pastor as if that's all he'll ever be he's so many more things dad grandpa uh you know brother friend uh husband Um, and those are just more labels but the idea is that we can be so deep because god's uh, ability, his divinity is so great that there's literally no end to the potential of a human being. So as I walk the earth, I don't want to see other people as some sort of annoyance or uh, slap them with labels, especially in politics. My gosh. And, and on social media, there's so much derision. And it's easy just to slip into that and slap a label on somebody because it, it allows us to to pretend like we know all about them and discard their infinite potential. So I appreciate that. I think it's a really beautiful perspective that everybody walking the earth is a is a gift. And can, can I share a quick story? Such. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in the there's four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, each of the gospels, well, especially the first three, really tell the story of how Jesus went and recruited his disciples. And there's in I think, probably the most reviled profession at the time were the tax collectors or the publicans, people mm-hmm. who were Hebrews but they worked on behalf of the of the Roman government. Collecting taxes. They were given a flat amount, collect this, anything over that's yours. So we're reviled by people. And the story of the calling of Matthew is really interesting because in a couple of the Gospels, you'll see the writers of the Gospels say, and Jesus saw a tax collector and said, come follow after me. The story, as it's related in Matthew, by the man who was called says, and Jesus saw a man and called him. 
come follow mm-hmm. me. And so society, and even his fellow, his, his fellow disciples, that's the tax collector. Yeah. Jesus saw the man. That's beautiful. Thanks for being with me today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And um, to everybody else who wants to connect with us, info at nogginnotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. Um, shoot your feedbacks and questions, queries, quips, quandaries, comments, cheap shots, bad jokes. Um, on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, thank you, Louis Locke, for joining us, hillside4.org, if you want to check it out. And uh, we'll see you next time on Noggin Notes. Thanks, dude. See ya. Yeah.